Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Yeti. And what we wanted to talk to you about today is our love affair with the greatest carry-all bag of all time, the Camino. Camino is the ultimate man's diaper bag. It's waterproof. <laughs> it's in, indestructible. See how my voice got lower? It will hold wolverines and like lava, but it's big enough. Literally, I put my lunch in it, my computer in it. It's got pockets. Your gym clothes, Dude, your I water bottle. I love this thing. You got in a Camino and I was like, oh, I'm going to use this for my bike bag. This is super cool. And then I saw you back and forth with it every day and I was like, give me one. Yeah, I mean, it literally is my everyday bag. And of all the Yeti stuff that I use, it's the thing that more people stop me and say, what is that what thing? Is that like, bag? what are you carrying? Yeah, it's stiff enough in the opening and the whole bag has enough integrity that you don't lose anything. There are pockets around the inside. And then the handle, this is actually crucial. You can throw it over your shoulder, but halfway down the handle, there's a rigid like grip. Right, so you can suitcase carry it. <laughs> yeah, so you're not just like dragging your bag along the ground. This thing rules. It's so easy to shuttle in and out. Man, if your kids, laundry, college, it's you. If you literally have to go someplace, come yeah, to different if you, sizes. If you need to like put your wet stuff somewhere, like if you've been to the pool or training or you need to put wet it clothes, this thing is the like bomb. the ultimate carry-all. We always are carrying one. We have one in the back of our truck. It is like we the universal best bag yeah. that you can get. We've improved the lives of a lot of our, our friends. And it's cute looking. Comma, you can get it in black too, just so you know. Look, if you want to get your own Camino, go to thereadystate.com slash Camino. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Eric Freitag to the podcast today. Dr. Freitag is a licensed clinical psychologist, board certified neuropsychologist, and certified EMT. His clinical expertise includes assessing and treating dementia, traumatic brain injury, and sports concussions. He's the founder and executive director of the Mount Diablo Memory Center. Dr. Freitag works extensively with individuals who experience sports-related concussions, including current and retired professional athletes and collegiate and high school student athletes. He previously served as the co-director of the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital Oakland Sports Concussion Program. He is a consultant with the UC Berkeley and St. Mary's College sports medicine departments, and works with several Bay Area high schools. Prior to their departure to Las Vegas, Dr. Freitag served as the NFL neuropsychological consultant to the Oakland Raiders. I have to tell you, this podcast was so great for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that he talks us off the ledge of concussions. He puts into clear perspective that young people's brains will heal but that we need to have a plan at home to be able to manage when my child becomes concussed. As we ended this episode, I thought to myself that every coach of all stripes in any sport, regardless of whether it's a collision sport or not, should really listen to this podcast because, man, in this tidy little hour and 15 minutes, like this was like a masterclass on understanding concussions and how to treat them. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of in the media right now, there's a lot of kind of information and I don't want to say fear-mongering, but misinformation or interpretation of information yes, sensa around... Sensationalism. Definitely sensationalism. But what's great is here we have one of the leading experts in concussion who is on the sidelines and helps people decide 
whether they're going to, it's safe to go back or not. And I think we tend to overreact and we tend to also have some very antiquated ideas about staying in a dark room and not going to school and not exercising yeah, not the brain. not moving at all. Oh my gosh. So look, this podcast is a must listen if you have a child who plays a sport where they are likely to use their head. <laughs> and if you're a parent or coach, send this to every one of your friends. This is PSA number one, Dr. Yeah, Freitag Please nails share it. this thing. This is really important and worth a listen for anybody working in sport at all. Uh, we hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we did. Eric, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you so much for having me and covering this important topic. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned this in the intro and, you know, we are excited to talk all things concussion with you today. But um, before that, maybe you could just give us a little backstory of who you are, how we came to know each other and how you came to be a concussion expert in the first place. Yeah. So um, I am a, a board certified neuropsychologist. I have a practice here, a private practice in the uh, Walnut Creek in the Bay Area, California. And the scope of my work, I'm a general neuropsychologist. So I see patients ages 16 to, I think, 103 is the oldest patient I've ever seen. I see a lot of patients with um, varying neurological conditions, especially a lot of dementia, Alzheimer's, diagnostic assessments, and treatment and care planning. But then also through the course of, gosh, almost 20 years in practice, my own background playing sports and also experiencing a couple of concussions in my life, that was a natural segue to marrying my clinical interest into my personal background in sports. And so, so I started working in sports concussion. Um, and in fact, in 2006, when I was still in my postdoctoral fellowship, I was started one of, really as one of the first concussion-specific clinics in the Bay Area, where we were actually seeing student athletes with concussions. Um, that was a clinic specifically dedicated to, um, to athletes. And then over the Gosh, the past 17, 18 years, um, the field has, has really grown uh, immensely um, and where I continue to mostly see high school collegiate age athletes, uh, both school and club uh, related sports. But I've also had the opportunity to work with high level athletes uh, in cycling. Um, I work with uh, Cal and St. Mary's colleges, uh, see a number of their athletes and consult with their athletic medical departments um, regularly. And then prior to the team moving to Las Vegas, I was the um, neuropsych NFL neuropsychological consultant uh, to the Oakland Raiders. And that was um, uh, very enjoyable uh, and interesting as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you learned a ton from, from all those things. We have seen, even in just the course of our children becoming school-age children, moving through high school, high schools now are recognizing that they have to take a crack at trying to solve or at least identify this. And I think we're we're starting to realize that maybe we potentially did not do a good job early on. I remember- Were you thinking when you were playing in high school, they weren't doing a good job? <laughs> you know, uh, it was it was a little sketchy. Uh, I had my, I, my eyes were knocked sideways a couple times. I think that's probably not good. But I still think people are really a little bit oblivious to this until it happens to their kids. And if we could shape a little bit today about talking about what it is, you know, how we define it, what parents could look for, what happens afterwards. And then is there anything we can do to try to mitigate this risk? Because as soon as you have a family member, particularly a child with a concussion, it is, I mean, 
people are really lost and we haven't done a good job. I mean, people know what to do with, they have fevers, people know what to do when they have a cut, even a sprained ankle, but they have no idea what to do when, when someone presents with a uh, head trauma. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a great outline of all the things we want to cover. And I also mentioned before we press play that we did get some audience questions. So if you're one of those people, we will, we will cover those towards the end of this podcast. But I mean, to Kelly's point, maybe we could just start with the very basics here. And if you could talk really about what is actually happening to the brain when you get a concussion and what are the short and potentially long-term impacts of it? Yeah. So I think it would be first helpful to kind of determine uh, uh, operational understanding of what a concussion is. Because if you go to the CDC or the World Health Organization or the American Congress or Rehabilitation, I mean, they all have similar uh, diagnostic um, criterion, but they all kind of differ and it can be kind of confusing, especially for a lay person. So I think the best way to understand what a concussion is, is if you think about three necessary conditions in order for a concussion to possibly occur. So the first condition is you have to have some sort of biomechanical force that is transmitted to the brain, to the head. So that could be, you know, directly from an object hitting the head, like a baseball bat. It can be from the head hitting an object, like especially a stationary object, like the ground. Or it can be caused by some sort of, you don't even have to have a direct blow to the head. Some sort of energy that gets imparted that causes a, a rapid acceleration and deceleration of the head slash brain. So think of a whiplash injury in a car accident where the head is going rapidly forward and backwards, or with a lot of military personnel, a blast injury, where they're not, their head's not directly impacted by anything, but the concussive forces of the blast can actually cause this rapid acceleration, deceleration of the brain. That's the first condition is that biomechanical force. Then that biomechanical force, well, that force has to go somewhere, and that's transmitted to, to the brain. So what happens inside of our skull is we all know, or most of us at least have a brain, and that brain sits loosely inside of our, our skull. It's actually surrounded by a layer of fluid, um, and that provides, that fluid provides a buoyancy and protection for the brain. And the brain just kind of floats around inside of the cranial vault, the skull vault, inside of that fluid. Now our brains are roughly the consistency of firmly set jello. If you were to hold kind of jello in your hands, it would stay there, but it kind of slips around and it's not very uh, firm substance. And the brain is very similar. So it's very malleable and squishable, if, if that's a scientific word. I don't know if it is. So as that energy gets imparted from this biomechanical force, the brain moves around inside of the skull. It reverberates inside of the skull. And it's that reverberation, that movement that in turn causes the pathology, causes the damage to the neurons or your neurons or your brain cells. So that's the first two conditions, the biomechanical force, the brain moving around inside of the skull. And if both of those are sufficient enough, sufficient enough force, sufficient enough velocity, sufficient uh, trauma, then that can then cause a disruption of how that brain works. And that disruption is your symptoms of a concussion. That's the disruption of how your brain is functioning, of how the neurons are functioning. And that can occur with focal or, or neurological signs like uh, disrupted balance, visual disturbances. You can have auditory disturbances like ringing in the ears. 
It can cause physical symptoms like headache, nausea. It can cause cognitive symptoms like memory loss, confusion, and it can cause more severe symptoms uh, like a total loss of memory, amnestic symptoms. Uh, and in rare occasions, it can actually cause a loss of consciousness where you um, are actually knocked out for a period of time. So it's those three conditions, the biomechanical force, the brain moving around side of the skull, and the alteration in your brain functions. That, by definition, is what a concussion is. That's how we define what a concussion is. So if someone, let's just say for everyone here, I'm, I was a young man once, ran my head into a lot of things, I didn't have or display it, the third criteria of altered con consciousness, concussion, headache, symptoms, that just ends up being sub-concussive trauma? And we should be thinking about in those terms? Like the time when your eyes went sideways in your head? I, I might actually cause that a symptom. That would be maybe a symptom. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I remember having headaches, I remember being nauseous, all those things. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that even though I think I just, I'm trying to put a flag here so that when people say, well, I, I didn't get a headache or I didn't have this loss of balance, there's still other forces at play on the brain, even though the brain didn't express that trauma through altered function. Right. So there you get into... Because we're not, we're not out of the woods yet just by saying, well, you didn't black out, so... <laughs> yes and no. I mean, that opens a can of entirely different worms, worms when we start talking about sub-concussive forces. So yes, there are forces that are imparted, if you're talking athletics, when you when you had a soccer ball, when you block somebody at the line, when you even catch a rebound, you know, on the basketball and you catch a rebound, you know, a hard rebound or something, somebody runs into you. I mean, it's a common condition in athletics and really in any sort of activities that you will be exposed to sub-concussive, meaning, yes, there's some biomechanical force. Yes, maybe the brain moved around a bit inside the skull, but it wasn't of enough trauma or velocity or force to cause any disruption into how your brain functions, neurological symptoms, alteration in, in neurological functioning. And so those we could consider what are called sub-concussive sub blows. And there's a whole body of research that is exploring and continuing to explore the impact or potential impact of sub-concussive blows. And like I said, that's a whole other can of words, maybe in a whole other podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we might have to bring you well, back to have that. Sure. <laughs> and the only reason I mentioned that is when we get to maybe part three of thinking, are there any things that my family or myself or my children could do to mitigate concussive risk? It would happen on both sides potentially, right? I mean, sub-concussive events and full-blown yeah. concussive events. Yeah, and so just to go back, you know, I know you talked about the symptoms and I assume many of those would be the sort of immediate symptoms that someone would experience upon having a concussion or, you know, in the few weeks afterwards. But two questions, I guess part A would be, can the brain heal? And, and part B would be, what are the potential longer-term consequences of having a concussion? Yes. So I'm so glad you asked that because that's that would probably be the number one takeaway for your listeners as they turn off this podcast is that the brain does an excellent job of healing from these injuries, provided it is given the opportunity to do so. So we oftentimes get a question is like, when does management of a concussion injury start? And really, management of a concussion injury starts the second that it happens. 
And the reason why it's important to point that out is because it's not just the doctor who the, the athlete sees later on that's also responsible for their, their care. It's the coaches, it's the parents, it's the officials, it's even the teammates that are on the field when these injuries occur that plays such a vital role in setting the stage for the full recovery, full resolution, and back to healthy happy functioning of that of that athlete, student athlete. So for example, research has shown that individuals that identify a headache at the time of the injury, like the moment the injury occurs, actually recover, this is in children, recover up to 50% more quickly than children who do not identify a headache. So then the question is, well, what's so special about a headache? But if you kind of unpeel the layers on that, is that what this research theorized is that children who said they had a headache after some sort of incident where they got hit in the head or something like that, we know that headache is a common symptom of a concussion. And so they were removed from play, not allowed to return and treated for the concussion versus the child who had a similar type of incident but did not report a headache, maybe they weren't identified as quickly of having a concussion and therefore missed opportunities and windows to treat and address that injury. Interesting. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the question is, will these athletes recover from concussion? Yes, absolutely. Provided that one, first and foremost, is that if there's a suspected concussion, they're removed from play and they're not allowed to return to play until they've been fully cleared by a medical professional. So that's first and foremost. Let's say that again, because this thing is, we're going to reach a lot of people. I want everyone to know that sport happens. This is okay. I mean, it's chances are that in your lifetime, someone you love is going to hit their head doing something they love. But when that happens, particularly with the youth, we should see immediately, there should be no ambiguity about that. We should see cessation of, of play at that moment. And we need to be evaluated by a medical professional. Am I circling that enough? Yeah. And believe it or not, that used to be controversial, right? When I was first starting, when I first opened my concussion clinic in 2006, that was actually a really controversial statement. Like, you know, if you just had your be- quote unquote bell rung, which by the way, is a concussion, your bell rung means you have an alterate, usually an athlete's describing, they just feel kind of out of it or dazed when they have their quote unquote bell room. But that is a concussion. I mean, there's an alteration in neurological function if you feel dazed or out of it. So there used to be this, uh, in fact, some of the literature even showed that if you had a resolution of symptoms within 15 minutes, that you could then return to play. But early research that was done in the um, early 2000s actually showed that even athletes, quote unquote, with their bell rung, meaning resolution of symptoms within 15 or 20 minutes, still, and these are high school and collegiate athletes, not, not, you know, not even the littlest of athletes, still showed alterations or disruptions in their neurocognitive testing up to a week later. Wow. Mm. And that was really some of the foundational research that came out in the early to mid 2000s that set the um, framework for now state laws. All 50 states have concussion laws that they differ in somewhat, but all of them do say that if there is a suspected concussion, that the athlete is, it is actually illegal to return that athlete, student athlete, um, uh, to, to play after a suspected concussion. 
that's a big evolution. And, you know, even at our kids' school, you know, every year we have to read and sign a bunch of paperwork about concussions and, you know, I'm, they do some I'm baseline assuming, testing. Yeah, they do baseline testing, which is great and a, a big evolution. But could I bring you back to part B of my question, which is, are there long-term impacts? And are, and now that I've heard your response to part A, are those often because an athlete hasn't been pulled from play and gotten the right kind of treatment and rest for their brains such that their brain can heal? Yeah. So as Kelly mentioned that the, I mean, concussions, uh, which are synonymous for mild traumatic brain injury, they're a pretty common condition in the human experience. I do concussion education talks all the time. And I oftentimes will ask who here is experiencing a concussion and almost always greater than 50%, 75%. As we are talking, I am remembering ongoing numbers of concussions <laughs> and the, the, the bell is just going up and up yeah, and yeah, up. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it is a common condition. As I mentioned earlier, that, that if they're addressed and treated properly, people will, will recover. The concern is not necessarily of isolated concussions. You know, somebody's had one, you know, a few years ago, and maybe they had one just this last year. You know, I mean, they, you know, throughout their life, maybe they've had, they've had a few. And I, you know, who knows what the, there's, there's no known number, right? The concern is, is what about those athletes that have long-term exposure to repetitive head injuries? Then you start talking about possible concerns that there may be longer term consequences from that. It is more commonly understood that yes, those athletes that have, we're talking long-term exposure, played at the collegiate, possibly collegiate, but certainly at the professional levels and high contact sports like football, potentially rugby, potentially soccer, you know, where they're exposed to repetitive head injury over careers that last decades, as we understand it now, they are potentially raising the risk for a condition called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, which is a consequence of the repeated exposure. However, we have no understanding or idea at this point as far as who's at risk for that condition. Is there a minimum number of exposures? Is it not even concussions at all? Is it subconcussive impacts that are the real problem here. I mean, all of these answers, all of these questions are really yet to be answered and actually quite a ways away from us knowing the final answer within the research world, which isn't consistent with what you might see in the media. The media makes it sound like it's a, it's a done deal. It's far above what's where the research is at. But for the overwhelming majority of, of us that have played, are currently playing or might have played sports at the club and high school and maybe uh, collegiate level, the risk is, it's, it's somewhat unknown. We don't know if there's long-term potential risk, but the research has generally proven time and time again that um, there appears to be pretty minimal to small risk, that there's any sort of long-term consequences for any individuals that may have experienced multiple repetitive head impacts, concussions, and what they might potentially experience later on uh, in life. And that has to be the case. I mean, I just think anecdotally, we look at the millions of kids who play soccer, the millions of kids who play football. <laughs> potentially, I mean, we haven't run this experiment all the way in. We don't know what's going to happen with predilection of dementia and all those other things and decreased cognitive. 
But you're right. I mean, I just I think we have to look not ringing the alarm bell of of scaring people off, but it does happen. And I still think as a community, we're underprepared. So if my child or someone I know has a concussion, what can I do at home for this person? And what what does that roadmap look like for return to play? The brain heals itself like any other tissue. We need to give it time and rest. When did I know when I'm cleared by a physician or what should I do at home? Or how do I begin to think about organizing sort of behaviors as a parent who wants to do something for their child? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. Like when can the person return to school? When can they return to and return to play? Like most kids are probably going to be concerned about the latter. So we talked about the importance of removal from play because, so just to quickly hammer that point home, when the brain is injured from a concussion, it's at a cellular state of sensitivity, a metabolic sensitivity, and is an exceptionally sensitive to re-injury. So that's why it's so important that we not allow players to return to play until their brain is as fully recovered and healed. So how I advise parents is that it's kind of two, three, maybe four stages of, of recovery. And how long that recovery takes, it's different for each student, so different for each athlete. There's a saying within concussion treatment is if you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. They're all different, right? And even amongst, you know, you may have had a concussion last year and you had them this year, it may behave totally different. But the first period, we call that the acute period. You just got to let the brain chill. And this usually is anywhere, you know, typically 24, 72 hours, you know, just a couple of days where you just have to allow the brain to rest. You don't need to lock yourself in a dark room. You don't need to, you know, have sensory deprivation. None of that is necessary. In fact, it's probably harmful. But usually what I advise kids is that just kind of pretend you have like a, like kind of a, a cold or maybe a flu this for the next day or two. Like that's the kind of level of energy I want you expending. You know, you can lay on the couch. You can watch a little bit of TV, a little bit of screens isn't going to hurt you. If it bothers you, then certainly you don't do it. But if you want to watch a little bit of mellow TV, that's fine. But just let your brain relax. So that step one is critically important. Just allowing that cellular disruption, the metabolic disruption that occurs in the brain to just kind of calm down. And then after typically 24, 72 hours, as I mentioned, you actually want to have the brain start to slowly engage in some physical activity. And you guys will like this, knowing how much you guys promote movement and exercise. Even in those first day or two after the injury, we still want to encourage some movement, some exercise, very mild exertion. Maybe it's just a walk outside for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but getting some oxygenated blood flow to the brain, getting some movement, going, uh, getting the muscles activated a little bit, that's critically important. And also stimulating the brain just a little bit cognitively, whether it's through quiet activities like a coloring book or baking, maybe a little bit, of, just a teeny bit of homework just to get the brain engaged. And these are all just examples. There's no set cookbook for each kid. Sometimes kids feel perfectly fine after three days. So their level of activity is going to be much greater than another athlete student who's you know, much more symptomatic. So that kind of phase two will typically last anywhere from three to maybe five days. And just as you're going along, you want to slowly increase the level of cognitive or thinking activities 
slowly increase the level of physical activities. So then by day four or five, I may have a student athlete actually starting to do some more cardio aerobic type activities, whether it's a brisker walk or a light jog, or maybe some stationary bike to, again, get some cardio aerobic work, get some oxygenated blood to the brain, release of neurotransmitters uh, in exercise, which are going to be helpful for recovery. And then the same thing, you're slowly increasing the cognitive demands as well. So you start to reintroduce some schoolwork, some school activities, and the whole time you're monitoring symptoms. Another key takeaway in this kind of post-acute phase that's important to remember is that symptoms are going to occur. You want to monitor them, but you don't want to necessarily be afraid of them. You don't have to wait until you're completely asymptomatic to go on a walk. You don't have to wait until you're completely asymptomatic to start to do schoolwork again. You just have to be mindful of what your symptoms are. And so, Kelly, then the bottom line answer to your question is just more of slow introduction of activities, monitoring of symptoms until the um, student, the athlete gets back to a level of symptoms where they're manageable that you start to then introduce more activities daily living, like going to school like starting in on some non-contact athletic activities. And then once through that monitoring process, they get back to the point where their symptoms are back to baseline and normal level. They have a normal examination, physical or medical examination, and their cognitive functioning, if you're doing cognitive functioning tests, are back to normal. Then you can start that return to play process and and it's always return to learn first, right? You got to be back at school first before you are returning to sports for next. I like that. And is that cognitive function testing something that most doctors are doing or is that something that a parent would want to request that their kid has? I mean, is that standard practice or is that something that you only get at a specialty place? It's usually, so it's it's a tool. It's a tool in the toolbox. It's not absolutely necessary. In some cases, it might actually facilitate a quicker return to activities Um, because you have that additional piece of information to provide more confirmation that uh, the individual is fully back to their normal state of functioning. Whereas without it, you might be a little more conservative. And it's not available everywhere. Like a provider like myself, that's that's a part of what I do, but not every medical provider would um, have that in their toolbox. But it doesn't mean you have to have it. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Momentus. And what we wanted to talk about today is your upcoming spate of travel and how you're going to manage that situation. (laughs) We've talked about Juliet's travel pack on the road. This is what I'm going to take. So I'm not fancy. I don't have a special. I have a. You big, are fancy. I have a big Ziploc bag. I'm going to put in my daily multivitamin, and the idea is, uh, who knows where I'm going to eat, what I'm going to eat. But I'm yeah, just are you going to get any coming. micronutrients? Who knows? who knows? Let's just keep keeping that thing rolling. It's so easy. Of course, I could survive without it. But I'm also going to take magnesium for sleep. And again, pills look very different. I just drop them in there. The third thing I'm going to put in the bag is some omegas, and uh, I just feel like. I'm always chasing that omega-3 number. And if I fall off, it's hard to catch back up. But also, it just helps me to stay. It's just I think it's just one of those things in my diet. I'm not going to eat any fish for, for weeks. Just, Maybe or ever. Yeah, I'm just, you know, that stinky fish. Um, the last thing I'll take is the the portable collagen shot because it's so yes, easy. Yes, I always bring those yeah, too. Yeah, it's just so easy. And so especially 
I'll use that on when I'm going for a hike, going for a load, because I try to do a lot of body weight and conditioning kinds of things. And I just like make sure that my my system is calling for it. So again, multivitamin I dumped into a bag, omega dumped into the bag. I've got my magnesium and then this collagen shot. Super easy. It's low. Uh, it's not, you know, I don't have to feel precious or sort of Yeah, but I mean, you're going to like choose the things that are the highest priority for you to sort of manage while you're traveling and you know you're jet lagged and sleeping in weird places. Right. And like, these are the things that are the most important to you. And uh main thing is it helps me consistent. You know, even act as like a totemic object saying, remind me to eat some more fruits as I go. Or a multivitamin. <laughs> <laughs> Especially since I'm trying to replace, you know, ice cream with actual food. So uh, if you want to get your own or create your own travel stack in the holidays, uh, travel stack anytime that's working for you, go to livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. Let me jump in because what I want everyone to hear there is there's a lot you can do at home. Just the way if your child has a fever up to maybe 104, you can give Tylenol and cool and take care and really manage this at home. That means though, I now in a very reasonably say state feel like, oh, I, I know what to do when my child gets a concussion or if, if she does. When would I think I need additional help? Like why would I come see you at a clinic or when should I start to, you know, start to look for other resources for someone in my family or myself if this sort of very first order of magnitude doesn't seem to be setting? Yeah. So just to plug a resource that I think would be helpful for your listeners. So in California, but you can, if you're outside California, you can view this resource as well. If you go to the California Interscholastic Federation, the CIF website, and go under the sports medicine tab, you'll actually find documents that kind of outline the different stages of return to learn and the different stages of return to play. So it kind of gives some guidance on each one of those stages. Full disclosure, I'm on the medicine advisory board there, and I help write those documents. So that's, and so I think they're really helpful. We'll link to them in and our as, show notes. And as, as long well. as you're not the head coach and also administering the test, I feel like there's some <laughs> some neutrality here. <laughs> right. So to answer your question, is that when is it time to maybe see uh, a specialist? And that's when really the recovery of symptoms. You're following the steps, maybe outlined in those documents that I talked about. Um, you're following the steps, and maybe you and your pediatrician or primary care doctor are outlining. And there's just a generally slow or unexpected complications and recovery. Just the, the individual's just not getting better or it's just so slow that um, we really need to get a, a second set of eyeballs on that. And there's no set time frame, but usually if, if you're following all of the criteria and guidelines that I just talked about and you, you've gone to the CF website or your doctor has this good information and you're not feeling demonstrably better by a good week, you know, five to seven days after the injury, and you're still with very disabling symptoms, then, you know, around that seven to 10 day mark, still really disabled, then I would say, yeah, it's probably time to go see a specialist. That's great. Yeah. Because, and the reason why that seven, there's, and again, there's no magic number, there's no magic day here, but most individuals by seven to 10 days, I wouldn't say are 100% back to normal, but by seven to 10 days, if you've been following the protocol as you should, and resting and slow reintroduction of activities like you should, you should be feeling much, much, much better. Maybe not 100%, but definitely doing way better than you were on day one or day two after the concussion. And if you're not, 
then yeah, we need to get a second set of eyeballs, a, you know, provider that's a specialist in concussions that has a lot of other different tools in their toolbox that maybe a primary care provider doesn't. Um, and uh, looking at this kind of recovery trajectory and see if we can't kickstart it a little bit better. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful for people to know too, that, you know, obviously the first, you know, order of business is removal from play. And the second order of business is connecting with your primary care physician, but that it sounds like in most cases, your primary care physician can be the person that helps you, you know, manage this process. And that, you know, you maybe don't, your your first call doesn't need to be to the world's foremost concussion expert that, you know, you kind of follow the instructions and work with your primary care physician, unless there's a bigger problem. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and I probably didn't emphasize that enough earlier, but yeah, definitely your primary care doctor, whether it be your pediatrician or general practitioner, that's your medical home. And so especially any injury after a concussion, they should really be made aware and you should see them for an initial visit, first and foremost, so they can rule out potentially any other rare, but sometimes co-occurring conditions that can occur after a concussion that your primary care doctor can rule that out very quickly um, and make sure that's that's not also another complicating factor. You said that every concussion is unique, and I can imagine why that is. The severity, the area of the brain that was injured, the the forces, the strength of the person, the nutrition, the genetics. What has surprised you most? You're a neuropsychologist, we have some neuropsychologist friends, you know, what has surprised you most about becoming an expert in this field that is sort of either a positive or like, holy moly, I didn't didn't expect that in sort of a negative light? Yeah, I mean, I think just what you had mentioned, just how varying these injuries are. A few years ago, I've had the opportunities to work on the sidelines of, of sporting events, high school events, I'm also an uh, EMT, emergency medical technician. And I've seen a kid get not full on knocked out, out cold, had to put him in C-spine. Probably maybe, I mean, it felt like 25 minutes, but it was probably like 30 seconds. And that kid literally by the next day felt 100%. Like by that night, he felt 100%, like nothing had happened to him whatsoever. He still went through the full protocol. And, and of course, before he returned, I've had other kids where, they get knocked over by a stiff breeze and they're symptomatic for weeks. And so it's just so, you just can't predict. And that's why classifying concussions is kind of a, a fool's errand. Like if somebody says, oh, they had a mild concussion or oh, they had a severe concussion. Like if you would have told me that kid who got knocked out, I would say, oh, that seemed like a pretty severe concussion. I mean, I was scared, you know, be on the sideline with that kid. I was, seemed pretty severe to me, but was it really that, was it more severe than the kid who, Lily fell over and was symptomatic for 30 days. And so like diagnosing the severity of concussions is, is really not helpful. You can talk about the severity of symptoms. That's helpful. But like saying, oh, it's mild, moderate, or severe concussion is generally not that helpful clinically. Your loss of consciousness wasn't that severe. It wasn't that severe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's probably been the biggest biggest surprise for me is just how varying the symptom uh, presentations can be. I think that's important just if we double click on that, just because it allows parents to say, hey, it's going to be unusual. And and even if my child has had a concussion before and it's been a year or two years and they have another one, it may not be the same or even present the same way. Yeah. I mean, I use a a perfect example of my son just before tryouts for basketball. He's a junior in high school and uh, he got knee in the back of the head during open gym. And he came, but when he came home that evening, 
very mild symptoms. I mean, just his presentation. Oh, I feel okay. Just a little bit of headache. I thought he would have been maybe out for a couple of days and he was out for a good 10 days with a persistent headache. And so just even myself, like I'm a concussion expert and I was totally, th- I would, I even emailed his coach saying, oh yeah, he'll probably be out for, you know, we'll do the full week protocol because that's what we have to do. But I suspect he'll be back, you know, pretty good to normal here within a few days. And he actually went longer than the the minimum one week protocol is as specified in state law with his recovery. Now he's back totally normal and feeling great, but um, it's just very surprising how long it took for his symptoms to resolve. How embarrassing yeah. for him. His dad's a concussion <laughs> expert. He gets a concussion. He's supposed to be the best at concussions. <laughs> it's like if my, uh, kid, if my daughter ever has knee pain, I'm like, I'm the worst dad. Uh, okay. So you and I emailed a bit about this before this podcast. And just to put a timestamp on this recording, we are talking on Friday, November 17th. And the New York Times published last night what I would say felt like a very depressing, but also pretty sensationalized piece about CTEs. And it was based on a Boston University study of athletes who played contact sports like football but also and, hockey. And, and hockey and some other sports. But they also died before turning 30 and quite a few of them died by suicide. And so there was this strong connection or at least theorized strong connection between the, the CTEs and their deaths, either from suicide or otherwise. And, you know, I know you haven't had a chance to thoroughly evaluate that study. And, and you know, this article definitely is tough to take in. But, you know, since it just came out last night, I would be remiss in talking to you today without at least getting your, you know, 30,000 foot reaction to it. And I think that would lead into, you know, some questions we would have about specific sports and concussion risks, you know, after we talk about that. Yeah, no, it's a tragic uh, situation. And certainly the article really highlighted the pain that these families are going through. You know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that, first of all, just I'm not a chronic traumatic encephalopathy CTE. I'm not a CTE researcher. I'm not in that space. So my understanding is that it is just as a clinician reviewing the research. So yeah, so 30,000 foot view on this is an apt description. So as I mentioned earlier, that the media, this whole CTE kind of talk and media, media, social media, Twitter universe is really far more out in front with conclusions, inferences, correlation and causation, way more far out front than where the research is at. So when you look at, um, and I did actually get an opportunity to review that research article after we emailed. When you look at those studies that show, okay, these X amount of very young athletes all showed CTE. So then you think about, okay, well, so they showed CTE. CTE is not an umbrella term. There's actually different stages of CTE with stages three and four as the most severe uh, staging of CTE. That research showed that virtually all of the athletes in this study, so among the 150-something athletes, 40% showed CTE pathology. They showed stage one. Most were stage one, and a few were stage two CTE pathology. Now, stage one and two CTE pathology is actually pretty controversial because it is finding pathology that may also be present in the general population, absent of any history of head injuries. Some of the pathological markers in tau pathology is, just to get in the weeds a little bit, 
can be found in individuals with no history of head injuries, can be found in individuals with no history of head injuries and are completely normal, normally functioning. So that's one of the, the concerns with that is like, yes, this pathology was found, but is it pathology that you would just quote unquote pathology, meaning normal finding that you might also find in other segments of the population? The other concern and challenge with this is that when you draw inferences for individuals that um, tragically die of consequences of mental health, depression, drug overdoses, suicide, and they pass away from that and they automatically draw inferences or tie it to the fact that they have CTE. When there's a large, significant body of research that show that the base rates, meaning that at baseline, what are the percentage of individuals that have severe depression and die or commit suicide? And is that percentage different in athletes? And is that percentage different in athletes who participated in contact sports or non-contact sports? And it shows pretty consistently that the base rates are actually stable across populations. Meaning that just because you might have played high school football, you're at no greater risk for suicide. You're at no greater risk for depression. In fact, lots of research shows that if you played sports, you're at a much lower risk for mental health, um, negative mental health outcomes. So then the question is, well, if these conditions are truly a result of them playing a contact or a collision sport, then why are we not seeing this broader across the population with much more epidemic-like numbers. As you mentioned, Kelly, lots of us experience concussion injury. Millions of kids every year for generations played high school football, but yet the research does not bear out that those individuals are at greater risk for any sort of negative adverse outcomes associated with mental health, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, neurodegenerative conditions, or other types of uh, ailments. That was a such a great summary of that and so reasonable. Thank you. Yes. And just so people are hearing this, I'm also hearing you say that we're not including concussion or concussion history necessarily. We're trying to just say, hey, look, if there's a concussion, let's treat it as an event. But just banging your head playing soccer does not necessarily preclude you or mean that your will automatically get CTE. Am I, is that not that a concussion will give you CTE either? Right. We want to separate that, completely separate that, like not even put it on the same map as concussions as this distinct injury, distinct entity that just like any other injury in sports, we want to address it. We want to treat it. And it adds an added value or importance that also has to do with your brain. So even more important that we address and treat it properly. Because yes, if it's not addressed and treated properly, then there can be some longer-term symptoms, longer-term consequences, you know, related to school and life, life functioning and, and symptoms that uh, could be as a consequence of mismanaging those injuries. I have to believe um, that there are probably, and I'm not talking about high school kids, but maybe I should, there are probably a set of behaviors that I could aggregate of things maybe I shouldn't do if I've hit my head. And I'm just going to say drinking might be one of those things that I might eliminate. Things that are going past the blood-brain barrier. Am I in the right ballpark here? 
Yeah. So let's talk about what first, what they should be doing, like, and all things I've heard you guys promote is, you know, especially sleep. So getting, um, you know, especially in those first couple of days we talked about within reason, as much sleep as you need is, is okay. Within reason, we don't want somebody in bed 24 hours, but you know, if you're normally an eight hour sleeper and all of a sudden you feel like, you know, you need 10, 12 hours and great, have at it. But regular bedtime, trying to get that eight to nine hours, especially for adolescents, is critically important after a brain injury. Let me double click on that. You said regular bedtime, like trying to get that brain back on its normal circadian rhythm. Would, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Within, I mean, there's some high school kids that they get to bed at 1 a.m., you know, it's like, <laughs> that's right. That's right. You right. know, regular meaning, you know, hopefully everybody's trying to get to bed like between that nine and 11 o'clock hour. You don't have a teenager. I don't know what you're talking about. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, regular sleep schedule and sufficient amount of sleep, really focusing on the on the higher end rather than the lower end. Um, you know, good, a solid hydration. You don't want to overhydrate, but, you know, making sure that you're staying hydrated. Healthy nutrients, you know, healthy diet, all that's critically uh, important. Yes, and let's talk about things you should not do. Well, number one, don't get hit in the head, again, while you're recovering from the current concussion injury. So that's first and foremost. Yeah, that's pretty critical. That's one thing for, uh, especially kids and parents to keep in mind is that, Kids that have concussions, I don't know if there's some physiological mechanism that happens, but they become <laughs> magnets for balls. It's totally true. They go out, they watch practice, and sure enough, somebody kicked the ball in from 40 yards away, and they had and they miskicked it, and they're 20 yards away from practice, and they get nailed with the ball. That's just bound to happen. So they become so. Those are all things you have to be very cautious of as you're recovering. But in all seriousness, yes, drugs and alcohol, something that's passing the blood-brain barrier, that's disrupting, disrupting, especially in an adolescent, a normal functioning brain is going to be just adding massive, not even like gasoline to the fire, like full-on every incendiary device you can onto the fire. Is our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, how should we think about Yeah, like if you have a headache. Symptom, yeah. yeah. Is, is Tylenol better than an ibuprofen? Is there, is there something like that that you could shed light on? There is a theoretical small risk that in those first 20, you know, 40, let's say 48, 72 hours, that you want to avoid a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen because that they are blood thinners in this very small risk that there could be a little micro intracranial bleed, small hemorrhage or something like that could potentially make that worse. But that's very small risk. But just eliminate that as a possibility. You just avoid NSAIDs for the first 72 hours. And Tylenol is not an NSAID. And Tylenol is not an NSAID, correct. So Tylenol is perfectly fine if it helps. And of course, read and follow labeled, all label directions. After that, after about two, three days, then you whatever helps is fine. I tend to like throwing something that's has anti anti-inflammatory properties on board because concussion isn't is in part the pathology is an inflammatory process. I mean, there's an injury going on, and that inflammatory process is more than what's healthy state for that brain. And so, yes, ibuprofen, and even preferably, I I, I tend to like uh, naproxen. So the longer lasting, like a leave, just because you don't have to remember to take it every six hours, you can just take it before school. And a lot of times it can last. So for a student who may have just mild to moderate or headaches, not enough to keep them out of school, throwing on board an over-the-counter Tylenol or NSAID is perfectly fine because there's not, after the first couple of days, there's no pathology that can occur by going to school and trying to learn within reason, right? And what I try to tell patients and their parents is you have to keep your level of exertion in the sweet spot. You don't want to do too much. 
Because if you do too much, that includes physical exertion and thinking exertion, cognitive exertion. If you do too much, yes, you will exacerbate symptoms. You could kind of extend the recovery, but you also don't want to do too little. If you do too little, that can cause its own set of problems, including stress and anxiety from having to miss so much school. So if we can keep kids going to school, even if it's for half days and they take some Advil to help them kind of soldier through the day within reason, not to the point where they're, you know, doubled over in pain, then that's, that's perfectly okay and perfectly reasonable. So I do want to do some sports specific stuff, but in the interest of time, I do want to spend a little time talking about things that we could potentially do or that kids could do or even adults or college age. Can we mitigate risk? Yeah. Is there, is there anything we can do to make ourselves or our kids more resilient to taking those hits, so to speak? Um, Some things that come to my mind because we had Dr. Darren Kandow on our podcast. Um, You know, I know that a lot of people are talking about creatine as being neuroprotective, especially for athletes. Are there any other supplements? I know that I've heard anyway that neck strength and shoulder strength can play a factor. Are mouth guards appropriate? You know, so what is real and known that might actually make our kids or us a little bit more protected, even suffering a concussion in the first place? Yeah, I heard that podcast on the on the creatine. And I remember, gosh, it was probably like 10 years ago when I asked that question at a conference, like, because the uh, presenter was talking about the metabolic disruption after concussion, the ATP depletion after concussion. And I remember I had taken creatine back when I was in high school and college. I thought, oh, I wonder if that can make a difference. And at that time I had asked and the presenter didn't really have an answer for that. I must admit, I have, I've not been great on staying on top of the research. I mean, I think it makes for an interesting theoretical question that it probably wouldn't have any sort of impact if you started taking it once you had the concussion. Because the ramp up period, you know, by the time you get up to a level where you have enough storage of the creatine, it's probably well past that 10 days where most people are recovered. So is there an argument then, is there a theoretical question that could you take creatine as a preventative mechanism to helping or supporting recovery? Not prevent, it couldn't prevent a concussion, but could it potentially support recovery? It's an interesting question. And um, one, I have not uh, really had the time to really uh, look up, but physiologically, it makes sense. It sounds like it would be a difficult uh, blind study. Yeah, it would be. It would, but you can look at it. You certainly from a, like rat models, animal models, they could they could do it. But I will tell you, I take creatine, and I have two uh, teenage boys, and they take creatine. You know, as your prior podcaster the doctor said, you know, it's very safe, and there is a possible theoretical argument that it could potentially help. We just heard Dr. Tommy Wood from University of Washington talk about cognition and long-term cognitive support with creatine supplementation yesterday. And what about other things like neck strength or all those other things we've heard? Core, right? Strong core is going to be important. So that includes, you know, from the neck down really to the hips. Like, so the more you can, more you can absorb energy through your core, then the less energy is going to be imparted to your head. And that strong core and strong head or strong neck rather, then helps support the head when you fall. And so you can lessen the whiplash and side-to-side movement and velocity that could potentially occur after, after a blow. So definitely a strong core. Really, one of the best things that an individual can do is behavioral modification, as far as making sure that their techniques, their um, awareness of their body positioning, is, you know, especially uh, sports like football, 
or tackling technique is so important to helping reduce the risk of injury, especially head injury. And so there has been pretty, as far as my understanding, some favorable research that's shown from different football tech, like heads up tackling, where they're really trying to take the head uh, out of play um, and not leading with your head. And so um, there's some stuff that's been done in soccer for athletes who are heading the ball to work on different techniques for heading, work on different techniques to kind of separate themselves from their opponents so they're not getting the head-to-head contact. Uh, all that stuff uh, could be potentially uh, helpful in lowering um, some of the risks associated with that. And then the final thing of that is rule modification. So we have seen football make some rule modifications with regard to head injury protection. We've seen soccer, U.S. soccer has made some uh, rule modifications. So for example, if you're 12 and under, you're not allowed to head the ball. If you're 12 to 14, you have limited rules as far as how much you can head the ball during in practice. So there has been things like that, that I think you know, if you just look at one of them, it probably makes very minimal difference. But when you add them all together, my sense of it, I don't know if research support it, but I think it does help. It could help. Yeah. So I have to ask, because we're on this concussion podcast is, you know, I think we all have been hearing for probably 20 years about the extreme concussion risk in football. And it seems like football at all levels has tried to make a lot of changes in terms of helmets. And, you know, just like you said, the heads up tackling and a lot of other things. But you know, is it still the case that football is the highest rate of concussions? I think it's mountain biking oh, is it? and, and yeah, gymnastics. And, and so I would love to know, like, what sports are up there is, you know, what are the big risk sports? I mean, obviously it's contact sports, so people can probably guess, but just actually by the data, what are the sports? And it seems like maybe some of the bigger sports like football and soccer are making some rules changes where, you know, for example, we have a kid that plays water polo and I think it's a lesser risk, but it's also not something that's being, you know, closely looked at by the sport, I don't think either. And just say Juliet's comment by way of, if I'm a parent in these sports, maybe I can get a little spun up on this topic. I'm a little bit more aware it's more likely, yeah. right? Because my, I mean, you could have pulled football out of my cold dead hand. I was going to play no matter what. So, uh, you know, my parents were left to be now concussion experts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. So the research seems to show pretty consistently. And, you know, I mean, I think just logic would dictate that your collision sports are going to show higher incidence rates of concussion. So football, rugby, there's, you know, when you look at incident rates, like per practice exposure, per game exposure, there's going to be your highest rates, but not far behind are your more significant contact sports like soccer, which directly involves your head a lot of times. Uh, lacrosse, both boys and girls lacrosse. I mean, I think those are wrestling. I think those are probably your your big five or big six uh, as far as incidence rates, uh, risk uh, for concussion. But the takeaway message is really no sport is immune to being totally risk-free from head injury. I mean, I've seen a rower before who, you know, got their oar caught in the water and it came back and snapped them in the face, you know, um, I've seen a cross country runner who's tripped over a route. Um, I've seen gymnast gymnasts who, you know, end up hitting their head after missing a tumble. So, you know, no sport is, uh, is immune to it. Um, I see a lot of cheerleaders, you know, stunt cheerleaders. Oh yeah. That makes sense. There was one year a school that I work with where by the numbers, we had more stunt cheerleaders in for a concussion protocol than we had football players that year. So yeah, so no sport is immune. Well, kids are flying higher and doing more twists than they ever did before. Yeah, exactly. Chase, take some questions. Yeah, let me, um, if we're getting near the end and I want to make sure to um, 
to ask these questions that people are submitting have have on Instagram. Is, and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have you back. This is great. This is my favorite podcast. Um so I'm gonna just read this question only because it was submitted by our daughter's water polo coach, Mary Colley, and you already answered it. But some research says light exercise can help recovery. And I think you already answered that, and that was a yes per the parameters you said earlier in the podcast, right? Yeah, and I even just take it one step further. And that's that's really research that's really been coming out over the last five to 10 years. And then just this last year, the International Concussion and Sport Group revamped kind of their return to play and recovery guidelines. And there's a real strong consensus among the entire field that movement and exercise is a key, key component to recovery. And I can't emphasize that enough because I see far too often, you all see in my specialty clinic, I'll see an athlete, you know, they've been doing nothing for two weeks. Well, you guys are athletes and physical therapists and you just know the importance of movement. If you take an athlete who is doing something every day for, you know, 60 to 90 minutes at least, and all of a sudden you put them in a stationary sedentary mode for two weeks, how is that athlete going to feel? No, terrible. They're going to feel fatigued. <laughs> they're going to feel terrible. They're going to feel depressed. I can't understand why they're not getting better. They've been resting for two weeks. They still feel fatigued and depressed and they have a headache all the time. Well, yes, because they've been doing nothing. And so like the first prescription for them is let's start going on walks. Let's start getting to the gym and just doing some body weight exercises. Let's get moving again. So that's a real key component to recovery. And I think that's a really important question because I think I, I came into this with that, you know, holding that myth, which is like, well, I knew there was a seven day period, but I was sort of under the understanding that you just had to lay there in the dark. So, I mean, this has been very revealing for me. Um, I think this will be a pretty quick question. Should ice hockey players have better helmets to protect their heads? That's probably universal for all collision type sports. I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, I mean, I would say the helmets are pretty good right now. I think that way helmets have been designed now it, are with any technology is the best it's probably ever been. We're not going to technology our way out of this. You know, the helmets can only do so much. They're first and foremost, the helmets are protecting from catastrophic skull injury. Like that's their first and most important job. Then how good of a job they do at protecting against concussions. If you would ask me this 10, 15 years ago, I said they really don't do anything. They prevent a skull fracture pretty good, but they really don't do anything. But nowadays, between whether it's bike helmets, with the MIPS technology, football helmets, the hockey and the cross helmets, they are getting better and more advanced to, yeah, they do provide some modicum of probable protection for some brain injury exposure, but they're not going to prevent them. That's for sure. I love that, that we're not going to out-technology this. This is a question. If concussive episode includes memory loss, does it mean it's particularly bad? I imagine that speaks to your sort of mild, medium, moderate comment earlier, but if you could speak to that a little bit. Well, so we're talking about the symptom of memory loss, and that can kind of mean a couple of different things. Memory is a pretty broad topic. There's one aspect of memory loss called amnesia, where that's a complete loss, either at the period, what's called retrograde amnesia, so it's the, at, the, at the moment the injury occurs and before, and then you have post-traumatic amnesia or anterograde amnesia, which is at the moment of injury and after. And so what we have found is that symptoms of amnesia and the duration of amnesia. So if we have an individual that has no recollection of that entire day, the research has shown that that can be a pretty significant predictor of a more longer term or more um, symptomatic recovery. It's very common. You'll get a little bit of it, you know, like they may not recall the play or they may forget 
a few minutes after the injury, but significant amnesia. Then more general that memory loss, like short-term memory loss, um, that can be a, a, a cognitive symptom uh, after a concussion. I'm feeling good because when I the couple times I was playing football and my head hit the ground and I went cross-eyed, I can remember running back to the huddle and asking my friends and watching them freak out that my eyes were crossed. <laughs> oh, I mean, so that's I, like, I, 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 I feel good about that. about that right now. I think I'm, about that all the like, time. Oh, I, it's burned into my the horror in my friend's eyes. Oh my god. Okay, this my guess is there's not research on this, but is cold water immersion good for concussion recovery? Uh, I have no idea. However, I don't know if that's been researched. I would be very cautious of cold water immersion in that acute period after that first, where we're trying to get just the brain to chill and rest. Because what we're doing cold... It's not very calming. Yeah. Well, what we're doing cold water immersion, we're, we're activating the sympathetic nervous system, right? We're activating that fight or flight. And we don't want to do that in the when you're trying to rest your brain. Possibly down the road, you know, several days and as a part of just a general recovery and you know, we know that activating that sympathetic nervous system, there's probably some dopamine release. And well, I mean, if it at that point, if it feels good, it makes you and you feel like it's helping, then it, I wouldn't think it's hurting. Um, but if it bothers you and causes you to have symptoms and probably don't want to do it, that would be my probably response to that. Yeah, very reasonable. Yeah, that's very reasonable. Okay, this is the last question. What are some of the best ways to address mood changes post recovery? So I'm assuming this is after the sort of seven or longer day recovery, but ongoing mood challenges? That's a really good question because that's a very common reason why I'll, see, why I'll see patients. So, you know, mood changes within that kind of expected recovery window, whether it be seven days, whether it be two weeks, or even up to, you know, a month or, you know, kind of within a reasonable recovery. It's totally normal that you're going to have mood changes. Either one, one reason is that, yeah, there's there's a chemical and neurological disruption. Our brain is responsible for managing and modulating our mood. So it makes sense that there, there might be some change in that regard. Secondly, if you're pulled from sports, you're pulled from friends, you're not doing the things that you love, there's also going to be a normal mood response to that. After the kind of quote unquote expected recovery window, and there are persistent mood changes, persistent depression, anxiety, certainly want to be a, a aware of suicidality. One of my biggest frustrations that I have as a clinician is there becomes this kind of watchful waiting. Well, you just got to keep waiting. It's a concussion. You just got to rest. You know, it just takes time to recover. And what I always tell patients, if, if as a consequence of this concussion, there's this kind of post-injury depression, whether it's directly related to the concussion or it's related to the life disruption or it's related to having to stop playing your sport or it's related to stress related to school or work or whatever, it doesn't matter. Let's treat the depression. Let's get the individual into counseling and medication if that's appropriate. Like, who cares what it's related to? I mean, yeah, that's helpful, but we can't just keep saying, oh, well, it's just wait, you'll get better eventually. Let's treat the depression. So if someone is having post-traumatic related mood changes, let's just take the post-traumatic aspect out of it per se and just say, these are mood changes that need to be treated just like anybody else. Right. That's great. That makes so much sense to me. That makes so much sense. All right. Well, we should let you go. But before we do, is there anything you're working on, looking forward to, excited about? Something um, we didn't we didn't say yeah, or hear did, you say that you're like, everyone needs to know every, this. Yeah. Is there something we missed that's critical? Yeah. I mean, I have nothing to support. I'm not really on social media. So <laughs> nothing, no, nothing. I'm not promoting anything. I would promote um, one of the uh, organizations of which I'm a fellow of. It's called the Sports Neuropsychology Society. 
and I can send you information to put it on your links. But you know, not everybody that's listening to this is in the Bay Area and may not be able to have access to me or other professionals in the Bay Area. But this is a, a society where it has a lots of really good information on concussions, on chronic traumatic encephalopathy for both professionals and uh, the community. Uh, but then also, if you um, feel like you need to find a concussion specialist, there's a provider directory uh, on that page as well. So it's called the Sports Neuropsychology Society. Well, this has been so extremely educational and helpful, doctor. I'm so grateful for you taking the time to be here. And I think people are really going to get a ton out of this and um, also debunked a lot of myths or you know, thinking that even I had about concussions that was incorrect. So I'm really grateful for you spending some time with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, you guys. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop.